This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. Monsignor Ronald Knox was a theologian in the early 20th century, a name that has mostly been forgotten among contemporary Catholics in the English-speaking world, despite his translation of the Latin Vulgate of the Bible to English is still widely read by many Catholics, including myself. I have a Knox Bible, and it has been translated, or it's been published and still being published by major publishers to this day. It's one I recommend if you find the Dewey Rams a little bit hard to grasp with it, the Knox is a little easier. He was an English theologian, and he gave numerous addresses and famous sermons and conference talks and things on various aspects of our faith, and I finally got my hands on a rare out-of-print book of his, thanks to the support of our channel members and channel patrons, that I'll be going over start uh, in the new year. And I thought that this first Saturday of the new year would be a great time to start. So I have for you today his pastoral sermon on the Our Father. And it's not the whole thing, because just the, the first part of the Our Father, he takes 15 minutes to explain. So we'll be doing this ongoing journey throughout the year, I think, through the pastoral sermons of Monsignor Ronald Knox. Let me know what you think of this at the end. The Fatherhood of God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I want these five Sunday evenings to attempt something which bears the character of audacity, not because it has been attempted so little, but because it has been attempted so often before. If there are 55 words in our language which are widely known, I'm afraid not universally known, by heart they are the 55 words of the Lord's Prayer. They are treasured by thousands to whom the Hail Mary is but a rigmarole, and the Credo a series of improbable statements. Can't we say anything about them which is interesting, or is worth the saying? I do not think it is presumptuous to suggest that we can, for, after all, human language is not a fixed thing. Its shades of meaning, its subtle associations, alter with the centuries. And a formula of prayer, however simple, however familiar, will need reinterpreting from time to time, if the richness of its content is not to be lost. Those good gifts which we ask for when we pray come down to us from the Father of Lights. We shall need light from Him if we are to know what is the value of those gifts, in what spirit that prayer ought to be uttered. And perhaps more than usually just now, because more than usually just now, we look forward to a future which denies us certainty. We look round us at a world which has forgotten the vocabulary of peace. At such times we are no longer content to shut ourselves up in the circle of our immediate interests in that familiar world, dominated by self whose issues are so clear, whose lights and shadows are so vivid to us, what we want and what will do us good, what changes of fortune in the life of this or that friend will fit in best with the scheme which our fancy has drawn out for his happiness. How easy it is to make our prayers seem true and unnatural, as long as we confine ourselves to simple themes like these. But when urgent anxieties about the general welfare of the world in which we live crowd round us and interrupt clamorously our times of prayer, then we begin to lose confidence in our own powers of anticipating every event and finding a solution to every problem. We are more conscious than the future is in God's hands, not ours. And then, with a chastened reverence of approach, we come to our Lord 
as his disciples came to him long ago and asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Let us follow that inimitable answer of his step by step, ready to learn and listen for once. Our Father. The first effort to make in our prayer must be to turn away from creatures and plunge ourselves into the source of all existence. We must humble ourselves before God as our Father. Without his creative activity, this thing that prays would have no being. And yet in creating us, he allowed something of himself to pass into us. He is our Father in that sense, too. We are created in his image, although the resemblance be faint and the inferiority beyond calculation. More truly, more representatively in his image than the other creatures which share our world with us. We have intellects to know God, wills to love him, and so we are enabled to serve him by choice, not like those others by the inevitable law of our being. In calling him our Father, not simply our Creator, we claim even as men the privilege of sonship, how much more as Christians, incorporated by baptism into the mystical body of his Son, do we approach him with confidence, the Holy Spirit within us crying out to him, Abba, Father, deep calling to deep under the troubled surface of our prayer. And then, as an earthly father does not merely give life to his children once for all, but continues to maintain life in them by supplying their daily needs, so the God who created us keeps us from moment to moment, showers down upon us in the natural or in the supernatural order, the gifts by which we maintain ourselves in the order of his creation, the gifts by which we live. Is that all fatherhood means? Why, no. Fatherhood gives authority, demands the exercise of authority if it is to be fatherhood in the true sense. While the son's character is yet too wayward and inexperienced to let him choose for himself, decide for himself, the father must choose for him, decide for him, enforce those decisions, if necessary, by the use of correction. What son is there whom the father does not chasten? So God, infinitely wiser, dictates our choices to us, recalls us by means of punishments if we set up our wills in obstinate resistance to him. Notice that in all our Lord's teaching, it is this side of fatherhood that he stresses least. He is more anxious that we should love God for his goodness to us than fear him for his punishments. The father of the prodigal son, so ready to grant even an unreasonable request, so anxious for the return of the ne'er-do-well, so prompt to forgive him, is to stand to us for a type of fatherhood. And yet the other side of the fatherhood is there. Father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. The sterner aspect of fatherhood is part of our Lord's teaching, too. And in our age, we are frightened of it. We fight shy of it. You see, in our age, filial piety is perhaps less taken for granted than in any age which went before us. I do not know whether the fault lies with the fathers or with the sons or with both, but it is certain there is a misunderstanding. Perhaps we need a new St. John the Baptist who will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. In any case, if you tell a young man or a young woman of our generation to think of God as a father, they do not necessarily love him any better for that. A smattering of psychology, imperfectly understood, assures them that it is quite natural to dislike one's parents, or at least one if not both. How are we to recommend to them, then, as a model of all prayer, the formula which begins with the words, Our Father? I think by pointing out to them that when we call God our Father, we are not using metaphor. He is our Father in the full sense, not in some applied sense. When we call him a king, we mean that he is more of a king, not less of a king, than those earthly monarchs who share the title with him. Their sovereignty derives from his, not from the other way around. 
So with fatherhood, it is from God. St. Paul tells us that all paternity in heaven and in earth is named. It is he who is our father in the full sense, who is the author, not the mere cause of our being, from whom we inherit not a few lineaments of our features or a few tricks of manner, but the whole form of our intellectual nature, who nourishes us, not by supplying this or that, but by enabling us to be, who controls us and corrects us, not according to his pleasure like some earthly father, but according to the appointed law of our own perfection. It is only where and as they fall short of that perfect type that earthly fathers forfeit, in some degree, their title to paternity. You must not wait till you can learn to understand your father before you learn to know God. It is by learning to know God that you will learn to understand your father. There is something else. Our Lord does not begin his prayer with the plain word, Father, as we might expect it. It is our Father. In the Greek, to be accurate, Father of us. When we pray, we try to sh to shut out the world, the thought of our fellow creatures, even of those who are bound to us by the closest of ties, even those in whose fortunes we are uniquely interested, serves to distract us and make our minds wander away from God. But before we say goodbye to the world like that, we have to remember and acknowledge our common sonship. We must not name the fatherhood of God without associating it with the brotherhood of man. On the very threshold of our prayer, we must offer ourselves to God as the ambassadors, if he will allow it, of all our struggling fellow mortals, of those who have no time, of those who have no taste for prayer, of those who forget that through carelessness or refuse through obstinacy or fear through unworthiness to make any approaches to him. When I pray, however, I am to be wrapped and carried away by this intimacy with my Father. There must be a continual undercurrent in my prayer, which reminds me that he is also our Father, the Father of us all. Our Father who art in heaven. Is that addition meant to put us in our places? To remind us that he to whom we speak is very far away, separated from us beyond the furthest star, so that we must think ourselves fortunate if even some faint echo of our prayer wins its way through to him. St. Teresa is not of that opinion. She boldly reminds us that God is everywhere and suggests that the heaven in which we are to seek him is the silence of our own souls. By a natural metaphor, to be sure, we lift up hands or eyes to heaven when we want to remind ourselves how far God's dignity surpasses ours, how independent he is of all those limitations and imperfections which encompass our own lives. But it is no more than a metaphor, the difference between what is divine and what is human cannot really be expressed in terms of space. No, the meaning of those words who are in heaven is not that we should bring God down to our own level by trying to localize him in space. It is rather that we should raise ourselves nearer to God's level by ridding ourselves, as far as may be, of those earthly attachments which embarrass our view. In the Old Testament, the God whose dwelling is in the heavens is contrasted with those gods of the heathens who have their sanctuaries on earth, tutelary deities of halo wood and stream. We have our own idols to distract us from worship, strong affections and prejudices and solicitudes which bind our thoughts to earth. And we may, must begin our prayer by asking our Father, who is in heaven, the God whose dignity removes him so infinitely above those petty preoccupations, to raise us too above them and let us dwell with him, at least for some wretched interval of time, in the heavenly places, alone, unencumbered, attentive only to him. Do we now pass on from the preliminaries of prayer to prayer itself? Rather, I think, though it is phrased in the form of a wish, we should regard that next clause, Hallowed be thy name, as an aspiration of our own hearts, not as a petition. 
the desire that God's name should be something hallowed, something kept apart and rescued from all unworthy associations. That is not so much a favor we would ask of him as an act of benevolence towards him on our part. It is a protestation from us that the God to whom we pray is a God of such infinite holiness, that the very name by which he is known among men, we should be a word not spoken lightly, but full of mystery and of awe. The name of God, that is, the, to the mind of man in his most primitive stages, something tremendously important. You must get the name right if you are to get on the right side of your God. It all seems rather strange and superstitious to us. What's in a name, we ask? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet, and if we believe in supernatural powers as affecting our destinies, surely they will not affect those destinies less or more because we use this title or that in addressing them. But we must be more imaginative than that if we are to interpret the mind of our ancestors. A name, after all, in common human experience is something which gives power. We feel much more safe with a dog which is inclined to make unfriendly advances to us if we can call it by the name it is accustomed to hear. The schoolmaster dealing with an unruly class is in a better position to control it if he knows each boy by name, and any lover will tell you that there is magic in a name, that the sense of intimacy which comes when you are allowed to use a Christian name or some special privileged form of it marks a definite stage in the growth of affection. Children and schoolboys are secretive. You will often find about names. To give away your own Christian names, or curiously those of your sisters, was, at an early time of life, to expose yourself to being ragged. And so it was with primitive peoples, to whom language itself is only a half-familiar instrument. Names have a magical force, and none more so than the names which are applied to their tribal gods. We even hear of tribes which will not let the sacred name be mentioned at all, for fear that their enemies should hear of it and should learn to ingratiate themselves with the god himself by the use of it. I suppose it was for that reason that the ancient Greeks and Romans would often address their gods in a long litany of alternative titles, would sometimes even offer to a particular god his choice of titles. Montipater se jane libentius audis, that is, O father of the morning, or Janus, if thou wouldst rather be called so. And I suspect that this was partly what our Lord had in mind when, asked by his apostles how they ought to pray, he warned them against the practices of the heathen. When you pray, he said to them, do not use long rigmaroles like the heathen, who think that the more words they use, the more likely they are to gain audience. And so taught them this, his own prayer, instead. It was the tradition of our elder brothers that the very name of God was something almost too holy to be mentioned, certainly too holy to be written down. And in accordance with that tradition, our Lord would have us, his disciples, begin our prayer with a kind of reverential silence. We do not even address him as God. We tell him instead that the word is too holy a word to be taken on our lips. What is the meaning of that? Surely he would have us remind ourselves that the presence into which we enter when we pray is one of infinite majesty, to which words can do no justice. All the praises and aspirations we can offer are a kind of profanation. Silence is the best tribute we can pray. We have not learned much about prayer until we have learned that an attitude of loving expectancy, of waiting upon God and allowing our souls to be overcome by the thought of his greatness, is the first preparation we need. We are to call him our Father, with childlike confidence in his love for us, but having so addressed him, we are not to plunge straight into the business of petition, as if nothing could possibly be of more importance than the needs which we feel at the moment, as if nothing could possibly interest him except our petty concerns, our, our importune anxieties. The citizens of that heaven in which he dwells cry, Holy, 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 before him day and night. 
Shall we not do well to tune our voices to that chorus of praise before we dare to ask him for anything? Hallowed be his name. A hush must fall upon our hearts. A pause must be made in our tumultuous thoughts before the right atmosphere can be established in which we, creatures of a day, can approach him who dwells in inaccessible light, the sovereign ruler of creation. Our Father who art in heaven, and we, his children, have so little heaven in our minds. That is the sublime paradox of prayer. He has no need, it does him no good, that human voices should be raised to him at all. His blessedness is such that all our praises, all our love, all our congratulation can add nothing to it. When we worship God, we are like men throwing stones endlessly into an abyss which eternity could not suffice to fill. And yet he invites us to pray to him. He wants us to come to him, not as strangers bringing their petitions to a king, but as children running in to interrupt their father, all begrimed as we are with the dust of the world, and yet his children with a right to his audience. There should be a paradox on our side to match that paradox on his. We should come to him, awestruck with a consciousness that only grows deeper with the years of the immeasurable gulf that lies between us and him. Yet at the same time, unhesitatingly, knowing that he wants us to be there, that he will not turn us away. St. Peter, after the miraculous draught of fishes, clung to our Lord's feet, crying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He bids him to bark, but he will not let him go. So we, at the very threshold of our prayer, hang midway between doubt and confidence, doubt of ourselves and confidence in him. Hallowed by his name, silenced by every thought, stifled by every affection that is unworthy of his presence, we will stop and take breath, as children do, before we open our hearts to tell him of our needs. And there you have it, the pastoral sermon of Monsignor Ronald Knox on the first few parts of the Our Father. These were sermons given at Mass to the laity a hundred years ago. And if you found them hard to grasp with today, I think that's more really like an indictment with, to us as a people. I don't know why we have, myself included, have a hard, as hard a time with things that were communicated to the laity, to, to regular, normal Catholics in the pews a hundred years ago or more, why we have a harder time with it now than they did in terms of understanding it let alone accepting it. I mean, <laughs> problems in the church notwithstanding. I'm curious what you thought of this, though, in the comments, please. So let me know what you think, and uh, like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help. As does sharing this on social media, that helps a lot, too. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.